Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a slightly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell from actually pre-Nazi Germany. Starting out with Brazil, this week we are going to see the transition between the government of Jair Bolsonaro, the current president of Brazil and a quasi-fascist, and Lula, the incoming president of Brazil and a member of the Workers' Party. Bolsonaro says that he is bucking Brazilian tradition and will be leaving Brazil ahead of the inauguration to visit the United States. Specifically, he's mentioned Orlando, Florida. On January 1st, which is the date of the inauguration itself, that means that Bolsonaro is not planning on being in Brazil. This is extremely important for him because as of January 1st, he will be prosecutable for the first time in his adult life. Brazil, like many other countries, has essentially immunity from prosecution for people who are holding federal office. And since Bolsonaro has been in the Brazilian Congress for several decades at this point prior to his ascension to the presidency, this means that now that he is no longer the president or is very soon to no longer be the president, he is liable to be prosecuted for a lot of the stuff that he has done. And this amounts to things from lying about the election to trying to promote some conspiracies that might lead to a coup to working with the leader of the federal highway police to try to prevent Lula voters from getting to the polls on the last election day to all sorts of fraud to all sorts of other stuff. On the inauguration day itself, there has been a ban on guns in the capital of Brazil, that is Brasilia as there is fears of violence in all Brazilian major cities on the date of the inauguration, as millions of Brazilians, Bolsonaro supporters that is, believe that the election was stolen from them and from their president, and that they might retaliate violently. There has also been a difficult transition within the government, especially within the military. The Navy of Brazil in particular is a holdout in changing over power to being run by the PT, by the Workers' Party. We're going to have to see how that pans out and how the actual transition goes as Lula's government begins this weekend. Moving on to the United States, the United States Supreme Court has voted to keep lower immigration numbers imposed by the Trump administration, supposedly due to the COVID-19 pandemic. They have voted to uphold a Trump policy lowering immigration numbers under a 1940s health law essentially making it extremely difficult and even more difficult than it normally is to migrate to the United States based on the claim that, you know, we need to prevent immigration in order to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Conservative court justices in the Supreme Court are thereby exacerbating a problem for Democrats who are trying to balance appealing to nationalists and racists with appealing to Latinos and, you know, anybody who doesn't think that people should be discriminated against and racially separated based on their nation of origin. The fact that this COVID-19 policy, you know, the specific supposed COVID policy is being upheld even as the United States is essentially abandoning any previously established COVID-19 policies is just an obvious racist and nationalist ploy to try to reduce the number of immigrants coming to the United States from Mexico and Central America. The FBI is under increasing scrutiny from the right wing and especially from former FBI agents now that it is investigating Donald Trump. The FBI is part of the investigation of Donald Trump and his presidency, especially his seizure and illegal holding of documents that he took from the White House after the inauguration of Joe Biden. 
former FBI agents who are Trump supporters are saying that the FBI is unfairly targeting Trump, specifically that they are unfairly targeting Trump as a part of a, quote, deep state push to try to prevent the Trump narrative from being promoted. Sean Hannity, longtime Fox News correspondent, has had an important deposition leaked in a lawsuit filed against the network Fox News. Specifically, this case regards Dominion Voting Incorporated, a company that makes voting machines that are used by a large number of states in the United States. I'm pretty sure they're used by almost 20 states in the country. Dominion Voting has sued Fox News for defamation. That is, that they're claiming that Fox News as a media company has made false statements about their corporation. The specific claims that Fox News made that Dominion Voting alleges are defamation are about the election. They said that Fox News had lied about election fraud and said that Dominion Voting and the Dominion Voting Company was responsible for this electoral fraud. Sean Hannity had a Trump surrogate on during the 2020 election to make false claims about electoral fraud. Specifically, this Trump surrogate said that Dominion Voting and other people involved in the United States government and also other electoral companies were participating in voter fraud. They said that these companies were producing false votes, that they were incorrectly counting votes, that they were part of a conspiracy to prevent Donald Trump from being elected and from being inaugurated. And Sean Hannity, as the representative of Fox News, as the representative of the media company itself, did not answer these claims. He didn't question them. He didn't subvert that narrative. He didn't ask where this information was coming from. He just let the person speak. And that is the core of Hannity's participation in this particular instance of defamation. Dominion Voting says that his not challenging that narrative constitutes support of it, uh, which is an interesting First Amendment question in and of itself. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is that Sean Hannity's deposition on this case was recently leaked this week. And in that deposition, Sean Hannity says that he didn't believe for a second, that's quote, didn't believe for a second any of these claims about electoral fraud that he allowed to be on his program. He said that he didn't care, that he didn't buy it, and that he had apparently been told by the network to let that stuff slide and just let the person talk. This is not unlike the kinds of responses that Alex Jones has given to his defamation and libel lawsuits. Specifically, you know, he says like, well, my program's a satire program. You know, people aren't supposed to actually believe the crazy shit that I say on it or the crazy shit that my guests say. So this is Sean Hannity taking one out of Alex Jones' playbook. The implication here is that Sean Hannity is trying to cover his ass while throwing Fox News itself under the bus. And we'll just have to see whether or not this works. Moving on to the news about the January 6th committee, Bob Raskin, one of the congresspersons who served on the January 6th committee, says that he thinks Trump will be indicted and is going to be sent to jail. I can only hope that these things happen. Trump is, a, you know, one of a very, 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 very small number of people that I think maybe deserve to be separated from society based upon how they've negatively impacted it. However, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to the narrative and to the legal process regarding this after the Democrats lose control of the United States uh, House of Representatives next year in January. In further fallout from the electoral activity and paramilitary activity of the attempted coup on the United States January 6th of 2021, 19 years in prison is the sentence for a guy who planned to kidnap 
the governor of Michigan. This guy is Barry Croft Jr. He was a member of the Three Percenters. Another co-conspirator, Adam Fox, was also convicted uh, in Adams Fox's case only for 16 years. Croft, Fox, and other members of the Three Percenters, who are one of the largest and most dangerous of the right-wing paramilitary groups operative in the United States, especially prior to their failure to commit a coup in the United States, they planned to kidnap, torture, and then execute the governor of Michigan. Specifically, their reasons for wanting to do so were because the governor was a promoter of actually good anti-pandemic strategies in Michigan. You know, she shut down schools, she imposed a mask rule, she tried to prevent the spread of this deadly virus in her state, and also because the three percenters in Michigan held the governor responsible for the failure of Donald Trump to win Michigan's electoral votes in the 2020 election. They said that this election had been stolen from them. So in addition to their plans to kidnap, torture, and murder, and they were planning to to video record all of this and release it to everybody, in addition to these plans to kidnap, torture, and murder this governor, they were also planning to use a weapon of mass destruction to blow up a bridge, specifically in order to make it harder for law enforcement to follow them as they were kidnapping the governor. This is all an important reminder that the violence and attempted violence of January 6th was not an isolated incident. It wasn't all happening at the Capitol. It wasn't all happening in Washington, D.C. A lot of it was and is continuing to happen outside of that. This was a part of a larger January 6th, a larger paramilitary swell in the United States in 2020 and 2021. The fact that we are currently in, frankly, a little bit of a lull is not an indication that this is no longer a part of our political world. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Dietrich Eckhart, the spiritual father of Nazism. Eckhart was born in Germany, specifically in Bavaria, in 1868, which makes him an elderly Nazi. Eckhart was born to a devoutly Catholic family and was a serious practitioner throughout his early life. Both of his parents died while he was relatively young, which eventually caused him to leave his intended studies in law and become a poet and playwright. He was a man about town in Berlin in the late 19th century, where he was a pretty ineffectual playwright. You know, he he wrote a couple of successful plays, not a particularly well-off person, until... In 1912, he got his big break. He adapted a very famous Norwegian play in German, and he added a bunch of terrible anti-Semitic overtones to the, which the original work lacks. This work became incredibly popular and made Eckhart a, a fixture in the Berlin artistic and sort of hoity-toity sphere. It also made him a large amount of money. He leaned into this world and became an esotericist, along with other Berlin high society influencer people. Except instead of being like an esotericist, like in a spiritualist sense, like a lot of people in the late 19th century, he was an esotericist in an anti-Semitic sense. He was part of the Tool Society, which is a esoteric mysticist right-wing organization in Germany in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He then moved from Berlin to Munich, in 1919, and was part of a small group of people that founded a right-wing political organization called the German Workers' Party. In 1920, this party reformed and called itself the 
National Socialist German Workers' Party, yes, the Nazi Party. Dietrich Eckhart was one of the primary founders of the Nazi Party. He donated a massive amount of money to the party, this money that he made off of this play. This money bought the party headquarters. It paid for the newspaper, which Eckhart was the editor of. He wrote the anthems for the party. He wrote some of its major slogans, a lot of which continued to be used in the party throughout the remainder of its history. Eckhart then, in the very early 1920s, heard a young member of the party, an Adolf Hitler, speak at a public event that the party was holding. He became enamored of Hitler. He thought that Hitler was the perfect surrogate for the party's message and that he was a perfect leader and a perfect potential dictator for Germany. Eckhart became a major proponent of Hitler, not just within the party, but within the region and within Germany itself, a major promoter of what is called the Hitler myth, the idea propagated by the Nazi party in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s that Hitler was some sort of perfect predestined leader. On a personal level, Eckhart became a mentor and important interlocutor for Hitler. They would apparently talk for hours and hours, multiple times a week, talking about philosophy, talking about party strategy, talking about anti-Semitic philosophy, anti-Semitic theories. Now, Hitler eventually surpassed Eckhart in part due to the success of Eckhart's own propagandizing, and this resulted in a little bit of a rift between the two of them starting in 1922 and especially into 1923. These are very important years for the Nazi party because it is in 1923 that the party starts its first literal attempt to take over Germany, that is the Beer Hall Putsch. Now, the Beer Hall Putsch was spearheaded by Hitler and a lot of the other more militant factions in the party. Eckhart was opposed to it. He had participated in a previous attempted putsch in Berlin that fell apart. And he said that, you know, trying to stage this putsch not even in Berlin, like not even in the capital of the country, but in Munich, where the Beer Hall Putsch was attempted, was a mistake. However, he was outvoted and outgunned within the party itself, and he decided to go along with it. He, along with the other leaders of the Nazi party, was arrested in the Beer Hall Putsch in the fall of 1923. He was arrested, like I said, he was sent to prison, and then released due to serious illness. He went to Berkesgarten, which is a resort area in southern Germany, where he eventually died of a heart attack shortly after his release. After his death, the rift between him and Hitler was ignored and papered over, as Adolf Hitler came to laud him as one of the original spiritual leaders, visionaries, and leading lights of the Nazi party, which is exactly what Eckhart was. This was to the extent that Adolf Hitler dedicated the second edition, that's the extremely successful edition of Mein Kampf, to Eckhart's name. Eckhart became a honored person within the Nazi party until its collapse in 1946, and we can only guess about what he would have done in the party if he had lived to see its success. So, Dietrich Eckhart, who died this week in history of a heart attack, December the 26th, 1923. We will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon. That is a site that lets you pay me to produce this kind of content. Uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. 
That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm always welcoming listeners responding to me with questions, with corrections if I got something wrong. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H I S T of the Right, and Fascism 15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week, Tuesday. Thank you.